Chapter Fifteen of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Three, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter Fifteen: The Constitutional Amendment. Though the efforts for a compromise which we have related failed in the specific form in which they were presented to Congress, they were not entirely barren of result. At a point where it was least expected, they contributed to the adoption by Congress of a measure of adjustment which might have restored harmony to the country if the movement of the cotton states had not been originated and controlled by a conspiracy bent upon rebellion as its prime and ultimate object. The report of the Committee of 33 was made about the middle of January, but at that time none of its six propositions or recommendations commanded the attention of the house the secession stage of the revolution was just culminating all was excitement and surprise over the ordinances of the cotton states and the seizure without actual collision or bloodshed of the several southern forts and arsenals the retirement of the southern members of congress and the meeting of the revolutionary leaders to unite and construct their provisional government at montgomery prolonged what was to the public a succession of dramatic and spectacular incidents resembling the movements of a political campaign rather than the serious progress of a piece of orderly businesslike statesmanship the north could not yet believe that the designs of the cotton state hotspurs were so desperate the more conservative congressmen from the north and from the border states still hoped that good might come if an effort of conciliation and compromise were once more renewed Accordingly, near the close of the session, February 27, 1861, Mr. Corwin, chairman of the House Committee of 33, brought forward one of the propositions which had been reported more than a month before from his committee. The original report proposed, in substance, an amendment of the Constitution providing that any constitutional interference with slavery must originate with the slave states and have the unanimous assent of all the states to become valid. Mr. Corwin, by an amendment, changed the phraseology and purport to the following. Article 13. No amendment shall be made to the Constitution which will authorize or give Congress the power to abolish or interfere within any state with the domestic institutions thereof, including that of persons held to labor or service by the laws of said state. This amendment was adopted by the House on February 28th, yeas 133, nays 65. The Senate also passed it during the night preceding the 4th of March, though in the journals of Congress it appears dated as of March 2nd. The variation is explained by the fact that the legislative day of the journal frequently runs through two or more calendar days. In that body the vote was, yeas 24, nays 12, and it was approved by President Buchanan probably only an hour or two before the inauguration of his successor. Mr. Lincoln alluded to this amendment in his inaugural address, reciting its substance and giving it his unreserved approval. I understand, he said, a proposed amendment to the Constitution, which amendment, however, I have not seen, has passed Congress, to the effect that the federal government shall never interfere with the domestic institutions of the states, including that of persons held to service. To avoid misconstruction of what I have said, I depart from my purpose not to speak of particular amendments so far as to say that, holding such a provision to now be implied constitutional law, I have no objection to its being made express and irrevocable. 
The new administration soon after transmitted this joint resolution to the several states to receive their official reaction, but nothing came of it. The South gave no response to the overture for peace, and in the North it was lost sight of amid the overshadowing events that immediately preceded the outbreak of hostilities. While no practical benefit grew out of the constitutional amendment, other measures were adopted by Congress, which proved of value later in the struggle. The retirement of the Southern members gave the Republicans a certain power of legislation in both branches, though under conditions which required them to be circumspect and conservative. Indeed, their policy during this stormy and difficult period was to remain strictly on the defensive. They must wait patiently until Mr. Buchanan's term should expire and until Mr. Lincoln could be inaugurated and assume control of the executive functions. We find, therefore, in the congressional debates only so much party assertion as declared that they would not recede from the position taken by the party and endorsed by the people in the presidential election. Indeed, it may be said that they did not fully maintain their position. They consented to the passage of the bills organizing new territories of Colorado, Dakota, and Nevada, without insisting that they should contain a prohibition of slavery. While this might be regarded as an important concession, and was claimed by Douglas as an abandonment of the Chicago platform, yet by this moderation they perhaps also secured the admission of Kansas into the Union as a free state, which greatly strengthened their power in the Senate. So again, on the other hand, they yielded a point to which perhaps it might have been more prudent to adhere. The Select Committee of Five and the Military Committee of the House had recommended three measures of considerable present and prospective importance. One was a bill to provide for calling forth the militia, designed to supply the President with military power to execute the laws. Another to provide for the collection of duties on board a ship, where the Custom House could not be used, was intended to meet pending difficulties in Charleston Harbor. Another was a proposition to amend the Force Bill of 1795. If these acts had become laws, they might, perhaps, have furnished the incoming administration with at least a part of the legal authority for which Lincoln was obliged to call the special session of 1861. But the Republican senators and representatives adhered to their course of inaction and abstained from passing these bills, with the double view of avoiding sectional irritation and to leave the new administration free to develop its own policy. Mr. Buchanan's administration had been as unfortunate in its financial management as in its treatment of the slavery question. No nation has ever before been embarrassed from too large a surplus in its treasury, said he in his inaugural address. His Secretary of the Treasury, Mr. Cobb, soon removed this embarrassment. When he took charge of the department, the treasury was full to overflowing. When he abandoned it to go into secession, even the senators and representatives in Washington could not get enough cash on their salaries to pay their board bills. Today, says the Washington correspondent of the New York Tribune, under the date of December 6, 1860, the Speaker's warrants on the Treasury in favor of the pay of members of Congress were presented and refused for want of funds. This disgraceful state of affairs was brought to light by a selfish device invented by some of the members in the scramble for pocket money. Under the date of December 7th, the same paper relates, some members of the House of Representatives were sharp enough to get the Speaker's certificates for pay and mileage and present them personally at the Treasury instead of collecting them through the Sergeant-at-Arms, thus securing their own dues, while others have been denied even pro rata, the Secretary already acknowledging an exhaustion of means. The speech of the Chairman of the Committee of Ways and Means on December 10th confirms the newspaper statement. 
Members are aware, said he, that the government has not been able to pay, for the last week or two, our own salaries, and many other demands at New York and other places. We look in vain to the reports of Secretary Cobb for any proper explanation of this descent of the government within four years, from abundance to bankruptcy. The financial revulsion of 1857, the Utah expedition, and the secession movement are mentioned, but they do not afford a clear solution of the problem. Mr. Cobb dryly states the figures and leaves the public to form its own opinion. His report shows that on July 1, 1857, the public debt was only $29,060,386.90, and that the balance in the Treasury was $11,710,114.27. On July 1, 1860, the public debt, permanent and temporary, was $64,769,703.08, and the balance in the Treasury was only $3,629,206.71. The actual liabilities of the government have been increased $49,790,223.74. In other words, the public debt had been nearly trebled during three years of peace and almost normal prosperity. Thus, the public credit was already undermined long before the secession panic exerted any influence. From July 1, 1860 onward, the decline was quick and disastrous. On September 8, 1860, Secretary Cobb negotiated 10 millions of 5% 10-year bonds at par and a slight premium. But this, his last financial transaction, failed in part. Only $7,022,000 was actually paid in. The remaining bidders refused to fulfill their engagements. His report of December 5, 1860, recommending an unconditional pledge of the public lands for an issue of Treasury notes, was calculated to alarm rather than reassure capitalists. Three days afterwards, he resigned to embark in active rebellion. Congress, on December 17th, authorized an issue of 10 millions of Treasury notes at rates of interest offered by the lowest responsible bidder, but did not pledge the public lands. Mr. Cobb's successor, Philip F. Thomas, appointed December 12, 1860, also a secessionist and thereby ill-suited to strengthen the public credit, advertised five millions of these Treasury notes. The bids were opened on December 28, 1860, when, in addition to the revolutionary reports from the cotton states, the rumor of a conspiracy by the rebels to seize Washington and the public archives was prevalent. The desperate straits of the government are shown in the first response by the capitalists. Less than half of the amount advertised was bid for at all. Only $121,100 was bid for at rates under 10%. $39,000 at 10 and under 12, $1,787,000 at 12, and from 12, the remaining bids ran up to 36%. The whole offer would have proven a substantial failure had not a few patriotic gentlemen in New York, not losing sight of their financial advantage, used personal solicitation to make up a combination bid for a million and a half at 12%, on the condition, however, that the sum should be used four days later to pay the January interest on the public debt, which would otherwise have suffered default. This half-financial, half-patriotic exertion of a few leading bank firms saved the national credit from dishonor, and the newspapers once more sharply contrasted from what height to what depth it had sunk by recalling the fact that at the beginning of Buchanan's administration, Secretary Cobb bought up the six percents of 1868 at 16% premium, 
in order to get rid of the surplus in the treasury. Seeing the resolute action of these bankers in the crisis, other capitalists so far recovered from their panic that they now came forward and by private agreement upon 12% interest took the balance of the five millions for which, a few days before, they had been too timid to bid at all. In the new cabinet complications at this juncture, Secretary Thomas in turn resigned, and on January 11, 1861, President Buchanan, upon financial compulsion as related, appointed John A. Dix, then postmaster at New York, to succeed him. Personally acquainted with New York merchants and bankers, Mr. Dix could make a stronger appeal to their interests to support the government with financial aid. A new $5 million offer of Treasury notes, the remainder authorized by the Act of December 17, 1860, had been advertised before Thomas's resignation. Dix, meanwhile, assumed the duties of the Treasury Department and inspired public confidence by his personal worth and openly declared loyalty. The bids were opened January 19, 1861, and exhibited a decided improvement of financial credit. More than 12 millions were bid for at rates of interest ranging from 8 and 3 quarter to 20 percent, the bulk being from 10 to 12 percent. Dix awarded $3,230,000 at rates of interest under 11 percent and the remainder at 11 percent. The public liabilities, maturing and current, were now, however, accumulating with such rapidity that he was compelled to recommend a new loan. An act of February 8, 1861, authorized him to issue 25 millions of 6% 10 to 20 years bonds. Eight millions were advertised and awarded to bidders on February 23rd. Financial courage had so far returned that 14 millions were bid for and at rates which enabled him to sell the whole eight millions at an average of a trifle over 9.5% discount. These financial struggles of the government, which occurred before the revolutionary crisis had fairly set in, are related to show that a measure of legislation grew out of them which had an important influence in sustaining its power when the storm of war soon after burst. The free trade doctrines of the Democratic Party had, with the success of that party in electing Presidents Pierce and Buchanan, also resulted in the enactment by Congress of the low tariff of March 3, 1857. The Republicans had long alleged that the policy of this act would impoverish the Treasury, and now when the government revenues had steadily fallen behind its expenditures, at a rate of about 20 millions a year, their complaint appeared to be well-founded. Whatever difference of views might exist about financial cause and effect, there could be none that some radical measure to replenish the Treasury was imperative. The Moral Tariff Bill, as it was called, was pending in Congress. A year before, it was passed by the House but defeated in the Senate. It was now urged by its friends with new zeal. The members from the succeeding states had been among its sturdiest opponents. But when in January they retired from their seats in the House and Senate, the adoption of the measure became practicable. The Moral Tariff Act was accordingly passed and signed by President Buchanan on March 2, 1861. It was a comprehensive measure, raising the duties on imported merchandise from an average of 19 to an average of 36 percent, and had the double effect of materially increasing the customs receipts and stimulating the productive energies of the country. It went into operation on the 1st of April, and thus its quickening and strengthening help came just at the opportune moment when the nation was compelled to grid up its loins for a gigantic war. But the law was not alone confined to the subject of the tariff. Two important financial provisions were embodied in it. One gave the president authority to borrow 10 millions additional, either in the form of bonds or treasury notes, 
and another permitted him to substitute treasury notes for the whole or any part of the money which he was authorized to borrow by previous acts. When a few days later Lincoln became president and Chase secretary of the treasury, they could look with a little dizziness into the financial gulf already open and constantly widening before their vision, remembering that by the terms of this act, they had power to issue about 40 millions of treasury notes without further legislation, namely, a balance of $13 million under the Act of June 22, 1860, a balance of $17 million under the Act of February 8, 1861, and the $10 million directly provided for in the Morrill Tariff Act. End of chapter 15